All right, if you'll go to the New Testament book of Ephesians tonight, the fourth chapter, Ephesians chapter number four, and why I'm turning there, if you would like to have that outline in front of you, uh, there is an outline that will uh, kind of go along with where we're going to be going this evening. But I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter number four and look at verse number 29. Ephesians chapter number four and in verse 29, and we're going to read down through Uh, the second verse of Ephesians chapter 5. So Ephesians 4, 29, reading down through Ephesians 5, verse number 2. The Apostle Paul writing here writes these words, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Tonight, the title is very direct, very simple. The Marks of Forgiveness. The Marks of Forgiveness. Now, you'll notice there on your handout that the, the introduction simply says this, believers must put away sin and put on the forgiveness that the Father has shown them in Christ. What is the importance of knowing that you've been forgiven? We might say tonight that it's important because our eternity rests on it. We need to know that we've been saved. We need to know that our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. We need to know that our sin is no longer being held against us. But it goes one step further. What Paul is writing about here in verse 29 of chapter 4 into chapter number 5 is he is very clearly saying that there are distinguishing marks of a forgiven soul. In other words, if we've been forgiven, there is a way of life and a manner of life that is going to be evident. You'll notice that Paul uses terminology such as corrupt communication. He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And he also says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted. And here it is, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So the word of God commands here that there are certain things that are going to distinguish us from those who've not been forgiven. There are many people today who assume I'm forgiven, yet they have no distinguishing marks. There is nothing in their life that suggests that they are extending forgiveness or that there's been any change in their life. Now that's important for us to understand tonight because as believers, we need to understand that each one of us needs to personally consider tonight, do I display the marks of a forgiven soul. Now you could make this very personal tonight and you could say things like, what about corrupt communication? Do I communicate corrupt things? What about edifying? What about, do I grieve the Holy Spirit? 
What about bitterness? We're going to deal with that subject beginning next week. What about wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice? Kindness. Tender-hearted. But then here's the key. Forgiving. You know, all those things, you could put away all of those things, but if you're not a forgiver, then it shows that there may not be the distinguishing mark of a forgiven soul. So what you have tonight is an outline that basically gives us these five principles I want us to kind of look at. Now, I've mentioned to you these Wednesday night studies are going to be a little bit different. Uh, there's, there's a different idea behind them. It's not as much preaching as I would do on a Sunday per se. But I want you to leave here tonight with really five very important truths, thinking about the subject of the marks of forgiveness, but the forgiven soul. Number one, in verses 29 through 31 of Ephesians 4, I want us to see, first of all, that the forgiven soul hates sin. The forgiven soul hates sin. Now, when we think about it, we think about sin, it ought to bring a burden to us. In other words, when we think about our own sin, it ought to cause us to grieve. When I think about my own sin, I ought to be grieved by the fact that I'm a sinner. We ought to consider the fact that it was literally sin that condemned us. It is sin that put Christ on the cross. So how could it be, as a child of God, as a believer, how could we not hate sin if we're a forgiven soul? And I would say it would be impossible. If we are indeed a forgiven soul, we're going to hate sin. It's the very thing that caused us death. We were eternally dead in our sins. So how could we look at sin with anything less than hatred? Remember the story of the woman in Simon's house who, who wept at the feet of Jesus. Most people don't see the true significance of that story. I want us to go there tonight, Luke chapter number 7, and look at verse number 38. Luke chapter number 7, begin in verse number 38. You're going to... Uh, we'll, we'll begin in verse 36. You're going to notice this story. It's the story about the woman with the alabaster box and the, the, the expensive ointment that was in that box. But if you don't read far enough, you're going to miss what was really happening in that story. Verse 36 of Luke 7, the Bible says this, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when we read this story, often we stop and we look and say, this is a beautiful picture of worship. But you need to keep reading because the true context of what this woman is doing is not found for a few verses. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. Now look, look at this. For she is a sinner. The Pharisee has the audacity to say, If this is really God, 
he would know that he should not be accepting worship from a sinner. Now think about where Jesus is. Jesus is in a Pharisee's house, and he's now having his feet washed with tears from a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. Now here's where Jesus gets to the crux of what's happening here. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon. Now Simon's the one asking the question. Jesus is giving the answer. Seest thou this woman? Who's the woman? The woman with the alabaster box who's washing Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping his feet with the hairs of her head, kissing his feet. He said, You see this woman? I entered into thine house, that's the Pharisee Simon, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is given, her is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Now the story goes on that those sitting there also ask the question, who is this that forgiveth sins also? The woman was weeping because of her own sin. The woman was weeping because of who she was in the sight of God. Now remember how the Apostle Paul mourned over his own sin in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 and 10 when he said this, I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, the forgiven soul hates sin. By the hatred of sin, we're going to flee from the things we once did. That's what Ephesians is talking about there. We're not going to communicate with corruption. We're not going to continue in the way that we used to. To, to continue. If you and I are friends with sin, if you and I say, I have a love-hate relationship with sin, we've heard that expression. I dare say we're not reconciled to God. There is no such thing as a love-hate relationship with sin. You either love sin or you hate it. Now, again, I'm not telling you we're not going to sin, but we shouldn't love the sin. As a matter of fact, we should hate every aspect of sin. We should hate what it does to us. We should hate, more importantly, not what it does to us, but that it grieves God. That's what that phrase, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. What grieves the Holy Spirit is our sin. One of the great parts of glory and a great part of heaven is going to be the absence of any form of sin. So first of all, the forgiven soul hates sin. Number two... The forgiven soul loves Christ. Now that might go without saying. But Jesus, as he says, let all these sins, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speakings be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind 
one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, I've got this noted in your outline there, Ephesians 4.32, just the first part of the verse. We're going to come back to the ending. But if, if, if we have been redeemed, if we've been forgiven from our sins, there ought to be a natural love for Christ. In other words, you don't have to convince a person who knows he's been forgiven, you don't have to convince them to love the Lord. They love everything about Christ. They love his person. They love his offices. They love his work. They love his name. They love the cross. They love his blood. They love his words, his example. They love his ordinances. They love his commandments. Everything that Jesus says is precious to someone who's been forgiven. A ministry or a church that exalts Christ is the ministry they enjoy the most. You see, forgiven souls ought to love our church. You know why? Because we exalt Christ. We ought to enjoy the fact that Christ has redeemed us. What fills our minds ought to be the thoughts of Jesus Christ's love for us. He is our redeemer. He's our shepherd. He's our great physician. He's our king. He's our deliverer. He's our gracious guide. He's our hope. He's our joy. He's our all in all. Without him, we would be nothing. Scripture says in John 5.23, He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, or be cursed. A forgiven soul could never say, I hate the Lord. A forgiven soul will never say, I want nothing to do with Christ. No, a forgiven soul loves Christ and hates sin. These things should go without saying, but yet Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus that these are the marks, the distinguishing marks of forgiveness. They love Christ. You realize tonight there are people who talk about God there are people who talk about religion. There are people that even talk about love for their church. They talk about they have a love for the things of God, but they never proclaim their love for Christ. You realize I could love my church and not love Christ. But if all I do is love my church and I don't love Christ, I do not have the mark of a forgiven soul. I should love Christ even above the church. Church can become our idol. Church can become our object of love. Folks, and I mean this with all respect, we, our focus could be loving one another over loving Christ. You and I as a church will never love each other correctly unless we love Christ supremely. It's the only way we're ever going to accomplish that. People that don't say anything about their love for Christ, I think take a, a daring approach by saying that they have been forgiven if they can't say that they love Christ. So number one, the forgiven soul hates sin. Number two, the forgiven soul loves Christ. Number three, the forgiven soul is humble. Again, chapter division here moves us from chapter four to chapter five, but the thoughts continue. In other words, Paul, this, this is the same continuation of the same subject. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself 
for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Humility. Those who have been forgiven can never forget that everything they have, they owe all to Christ. That causes humility. It doesn't allow for pride. It doesn't allow for arrogance. It doesn't allow for us to take credit for anything. We respond as a forgiven soul to Christ because of what he's done for us. Had it not been for Christ extending forgiveness to us, giving us undeserved, unmerited mercy, we were simply wandering sheep who were ready to perish. And Christ came and found us and rescued us. A proud saint, a proud saint is the one that is most likely to fall. Uh, There's no room in the forgiven soul for pride. Pride is inconsistent with one of God's children. And we've all met a a proud saint. Maybe we've all been filled with pride before. We, we may all have been at a place in our life when we thought, listen, I am, I am the, the greatest example to what a believer ought to look like. I'm, I am a, I'm a treasure to my church. Uh, we're all just redeemed souls. There's no pride in us. Now, we are to boast in Christ. Even the Apostle Paul said, I'm only going to boast in one thing. I'm going to boast in Jesus Christ and his cross. You know, we can actually boast about Christ all we want, and it's not even annoying. Now, the world's not going to like it, but can you imagine sitting in, in a church when someone says, listen, we exalt and boast about Christ too much. If that's ever your thought, there's something wrong with your walk with God. If, if someone says, listen, that church talks about Christ too much, there's something wrong with their soul. Because you can never say too much about he who has saved you. Forgiveness should produce a meek, humble spirit. Jacob said in Genesis 32.10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Think about what he's saying. I'm not worthy of even the least of his mercies. King Hezekiah, it's hard to catch this in the context. You can read this for yourself in Isaiah 38, 15. I shall go softly all my years. You'll understand the context when you see the verses. And again, the Apostle Paul, I am less than the least of all saints. He used words like I'm the chief of sinners. There's no pride in that. Humility. When you and I have nothing that we can call our own, you know, we can only take credit for one thing, sin. That's all we have to offer. When we compare ourselves to a holy God, all we have to offer is sin. We have nothing else to offer him. There is no garment that we should put on more readily as a forgiven soul than the garment of humility. The forgiven soul hates sin The forgiven soul loves Christ. The forgiven soul is humble. Number four, the forgiven soul is holy. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 7. We didn't read this, but let's read it together. But fornication 
and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The chief desire of a forgiven soul is to please the one who saved him. My chief desire as a child of God today ought to be to please God. He who saved me, I had a desire to do his will. I had a desire to glorify God. I ought to desire to live for him. The psalmist in Psalm 116 verse 12 asked a very simple question, but very pointed. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? What do I owe God for what he's done for me? I owe him my holiness. I owe him my righteous living. I owe him living a life that is pleasing to God. It ought to be the leading characteristic in a forgiven soul. When we remember that Jesus forgave us, when we remember that Jesus showed us mercy, Paul labored more diligently for God when he realized what Christ had done for him. It was a sense of forgiveness that made Remember the story of Zacchaeus. It was his forgiveness that made Zacchaeus, after he had been saved, he said, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold, Luke 19.8. The forgiven soul lives a holy life. You've heard the expression, oil and water don't mix. The forgiveness of sin and the love of sin don't mix. You can't have the love of sin and the forgiveness of sin coexist. They're like oil and water. They will never go together. All that claim to have been washed in the blood of Christ, who've been had their sins forgiven, are sanctified by the Spirit of Christ. We are to live a life of holiness. Not perfect, but holy. So the forgiving soul, the forgiven soul hates sin, loves Christ, is humble, is holy. And then finally, what we've been getting to throughout this whole series is the forgiven soul, forgiven soul is forgiving. And we go back to that verse, verse 32, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Remember, we started this series by asking the question, how can we be forgiving people? And we started with the premise that the only reason we can be forgiving towards others is because we have been forgiven. That is our motivation. Now, we haven't talked a lot in this little series about, well, what if, how many times should I forgive or what sins should I forgive? Paul is expressing a truth here. Notice it's not conditional, but these are all marks. A person who forgives another is a person who's put off all of these other things. 
If, if, if today I struggle with corrupt communication or I struggle with uh, grieving the Spirit of God or I struggle with bitterness, which is going to be very important. We start that, that topic next week. And wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice and kindness and being tenderhearted. I can guarantee you if you're struggling in those areas, you will not be a forgiving person. Notice Paul lists forgiving after all of these things. But then he says, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Why am I to forgive you? Because Christ forgave me. That's the simple motivation. Why am I to be forgiving? We are to do as has been done unto us. You know the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You realize that there's actually a principle of forgiveness in that. We want people to forgive us, but yet we don't extend forgiveness to people. You realize that when somebody, uh, we've done someone wrong, we want them to forgive us, but when the tables are turned, we're not so forgiving to them. We realize tonight that to be a forgiving person means sometimes you have to look over offenses of the brethren. I can tell you, even in a church our size, People are going to offend one another. <laughs> and people say, well, I like the small church because it's like a family. Well, I don't know what kind of family you grow up in. But sometimes families can be the worst. Some people say, well, small church, we like it because it's like a family. Everybody knows everything about everybody. In that, there's going to be offenses. There are going to be times when we're offended at one another. You're going to be, I'm going to offend you. Hopefully it's not intentionally, but I'm going to offend you. You're going to offend me. But a forgiven soul looks over and doesn't hold a grudge. We endeavor, as Paul says, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. It is impossible to walk in love and be unforgiving. If I say I love my wife, but I won't forgive her, those two things cannot go together. Christ cannot say to us, I love you, but I don't forgive you. And on the flip side, he also can't say, I forgive you, but I don't love you. Love and forgiveness go together. God's love is forgiveness. But Notice how he says, as Christ hath loved us. How did Christ love us? He gave himself for us. Paul's telling them, remember how God, for Christ's sake, forgave you and endeavor to do the very same things towards your fellow believers and fellow brethren. How much has Christ forgiven our sins? Completely. He's not holding a single sin against us. And that's going to lead us into what bitterness is. Bitterness is the result of being unforgiving. If I'm a bitter person tonight, I'm bitter because I am unwilling to forgive. And by the way, the only person bitterness hurts is the person who is bitter. My bitterness doesn't hurt the other person. It hurts me. And it completely alienates me from the reality of what a forgiven soul is supposed to be. I am supposed to be a forgiving person. An unforgiving, quarrelsome believer 
It's, it is the exact opposite of a profession of faith. It's hard to believe that someone who says, I've been forgiven of my sin, yet they are unwilling to forgive others. Not tonight. Our intention is not to point out people and to say, hey, I know somebody who does that. I'm not, I'm not asking you to think about who that might be. I'm challenging you to think, is that you? Or it's easy for us to look at someone else and say, listen, that's an unforgiving person. But what about you? Are you willing to be forgiving of others? Now you say, preacher, uh, there are circumstances I've been dealing with for a long time. Join the club. I am too. There are still things today that if I'm not careful, old wounds get opened again and I get mad all over again. Forgiveness is not just a one-time event and it's over. It's over and over and over again. It is choosing because Christ has forgiven me. I'm going to continue to forgive you over and over and over again. Now, that's easy to say, very difficult to live. But if we have been forgiven, then we are commanded to forgive others. Think about this. Why is forgiveness important? Forgiveness is important because without forgiveness, you and I do not have a home in heaven. If we're not forgiven, we have no hope. Forgiveness is the only title that is upon the head of every person who resides there. You realize there's no unforgiven people in heaven. Think about that. There are no unforgiven people in heaven. They've all been forgiven. Forgiveness is the only right to eternity. Forgiveness is the subject of the song of the redeemed. We're going to sing about our forgiveness for all of eternity. Imagine an unforgiving soul, if they could be there, in a place where everyone else has been forgiven. Now, we're, at, we're speaking in hypothetical terms here because it can't happen. But imagine being the only unforgiven soul in a place of all who have been forgiven. They'd be completely out of place. Folks, really, the reality is, is there's no room for unforgiveness among the brethren. People say, well, this situation allows for me to be unforgiving. I'm not the judge of that. But here's what I do know about the scripture. It does say that we are to be forgiving and to forgive one another. If we love our brethren, we'll forgive them. If our sins have been forgiven, we ought to forgive others. If we have been forgiven, the best things for us are still yet to come. One day we're going to see the Lord face to face. We're going to see him in all of his glory. And Psalm 32, 1, I think summarizes this up so beautifully. He says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32, 1 is a definitive statement of justification. I stand righteous and justified in the sight of God because of the forgiveness Christ extended to me, not because I was worthy of forgiveness. You realize some people say this, well, I'll forgive them when they prove to me that they should be forgiven. If Christ had dealt with you and I that way, we'd never have been forgiven. 
If we wait for the person who we're failing to extend forgiveness to, if we wait for them to get it together, guess what? They're never going to get it together. It's never going to be. They cannot earn your forgiveness. And if we don't keep Christ in our mind's eye about this, we'll never be able to obey what Paul says there again in Ephesians 4.32. This is not a suggestion. This is a commandment. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see, and it's there on your, on your sheet there, he says, we know nothing of the love of Christ if we do not forgive others as we have been forgiven. It's the defining mark of our own forgiveness of sin. If you were to say, preacher, I've put away all those other lists, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, I'm not an unclean idolater. I'm not, I don't speak corrupt things. I, I don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't have bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, but you're unforgiving, then you're still in violation of what God's word says. Forgiveness is a grace that is given by God. And folks, if God's people cannot be forgiving, who can? Okay, if God's people can't be forgiving, who can? I love these two quotes that are given to you, and I'm going to finish with these, and I know they're written there, and you can read them. And these are both men who lived years and years ago. But Thomas Watson said this, our forgiving others is not a cause of God's forgiving us, but it is a condition without which he will not forgive us. John Bunyan said, no child of God sins to that degree as to make himself incapable of forgiveness. And I think about that. Have we made some people incapable to be forgiven? Listen, if in Christ nobody is beyond his forgiveness, where do you and I have a right to determine who we will forgive and who we won't? We don't have the right. If Christ says there's nobody who's beyond the reach of my forgiveness, then we don't have a right to do that also. Next week, we'll begin looking at the subject of bitterness and uh, I don't know how many weeks that'll be. It may just be two or three weeks. But I want us to be thinking about that. And again, forgiveness or lack thereof and bitterness, they go together. So I hope this will be a helpful series to us. And I hope this series just on forgiveness has been a blessing to you as well.